On June 6, 1986, a Massachusetts state prisoner was released on a 48-hour unsupervised furlough. He was serving a life sentence convicted of armed robbery and first-degree murder for his role in the killing of a 17-year-old gas station attendant. Massachusetts and at least 30 other states and the federal prison system at the time operated similar programs in which prisoners could apply for unsupervised visits home. This prisoner had previously completed nine weekend furloughs without incident. He left the Northeastern Correctional Center in West Concord on a Friday, but he didn't return the following Monday as required. Instead, he made his way to Louisiana and eventually to Maryland. On April 3, 1987, he broke into the home of Clifford Barnes and Angela Miller. Here's Mr. Barnes. For 12 hours, I was beaten, slashed, and terrorized. My wife, Angie, was brutally raped. Their ordeal ended only when Mr. Barnes escaped the next morning and alerted neighbors. The assailant was later captured by police after a shootout in which he was injured. He was charged and convicted of rape, kidnapping, and attempted murder, and sentenced to two consecutive life terms, plus 85 years. His name was William Horton, Jr. He's known to history as Willie Horton, and he became a central figure in the 1988 presidential contest between the Democratic nominee, Governor Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts, and the Republican, then Vice President George H.W. Bush. And so I am not going to furlough men like Willie Horton. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton. Willie Horton. In this episode of Oppofile, we'll look at a campaign that touched a racial nerve that became an infamous symbol of negative campaigning and may have contributed to criminal justice policies that are now at the heart of a national reckoning over race and policing. From Last 5% Media, I'm Joseph Radota, and this is Oppofile. I make no bones about who I am, what I am, and what I do. If you're on the other team, uh, I'm going to try to beat you. That's Lee Atwater, the legendary GOP political consultant, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, and manager of George H.W. Bush's 1988 presidential campaign. In the spring of 88, Atwater turned to Jim Pinkerton, the campaign's director of research, and handed him a three-by-five card. We're going to have to use research to win this campaign, Lee told Jim. You get me the stuff on this little bastard and put it on this 3 by 5 card, Lee said in his Georgia accent, and you can use both sides. Pinkerton took the card and brought it back a short time later. There were seven items on the card, including the governor's opposition to the death penalty, pollution in Boston Harbor, and videoing a bill to require the Pledge of Allegiance in public schools. But there was something else that Pinkerton says he first discovered while watching the April 12th debate among the Democratic presidential candidates. In that debate, Senator Al Gore described the Massachusetts furlough program and noted that at least two prisoners had escaped and committed additional crimes. Gore then turned to Governor Michael Dukakis and asked, if you were elected president, would you advocate a similar program for federal penitentiaries? Al Gore knew about Willie Horton. I knew about Willie Horton. Anybody who'd read the Boston Herald knew about Willie Horton. 
That's Susan Estrich, manager of the Dukakis presidential campaign. We had smart, smart people who were digging dirt like crazy, not only on George Bush, but also figuring out the vulnerabilities of our own candidate. Because one of the first things you do in a campaign is you want to do opposition research on yourself. If you got enough money, you hire the best to do it. Because you want to know from the outset, as I always say, I can deal with almost anything except what I don't know is coming. And so we had done tons of opposition research on Dukakis himself. And we had recognized early on that one of the biggest issues he was going to face was Willie Horton and the furlough issue. And so Gore was going for a weakness. Now, there's a product in oppo research that's known as the vulnerability study. That's when an oppo researcher digs into the record of the candidate rather than the opponent. We're going to return to that topic, vulnerability studies, sometimes called self-research, in future episodes of this podcast. But as I looked at this campaign, one of the first questions I had was simply, did the Dukakis campaign see it coming? And did they prepare? I think that this is really important because this is part of the story that people often do not know or forget. This is Dr. Marsha Chatelain, a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University, who has written about civil rights and the great migration of Southern Blacks to the North. Al Gore is running as a right-ish of center Democrat. And so coming from Tennessee, he is challenging Dukakis's liberalism by bringing up very vaguely the furlough program. But what's interesting about him bringing that up is that there were furlough programs in all 50 states. And there was actually a dramatic situation when Ronald Reagan was governor in which two furloughed um, people uh, committed murders. And so this wasn't the first time there was a story of someone committing a serious violent crime under furlough. It's just that what Al Gore was trying to do, and I think we see this a lot with the Democrats, is he was trying to capture the more conservative Democratic voice by saying, I can join you on some elements of social policy, but just so you know, I'm a tough on crime kind of guy. The problem is he chose the wrong place, okay? Susan Estrich from the Dukakis campaign. And Democratic primaries in many states are heavily, heavily influenced by the African-American vote. So bringing it up in New York backfired on him. Al Gore ended his campaign a week after that Democratic debate in New York. But Susan Estrich knew that this wasn't the end of the furlough issue. There it is, Michael. Here it's coming, okay? Gore's not going to be able to do it. There's too big a black vote in New York. It's going to backfire. But there's the target. It's on your back. And the Republicans are not going to have any of these problems. Uh, I'm John Schilling, and during the 1988 campaign, I was a supervisor uh, in the Opposition Research Division of the Republican National Committee. John Schilling was 23 years old. He was fresh off of an unpaid internship 
with a Republican senator from his home state of California and joined the Republican National Committee in the Finance Department. Uh, so I was very excited to go over to the RNC where they paid me an hourly wage originally to call people up and ask them for money. And mind you, this was on the heels of uh, the Iran-Contra scandal uh, and a midnight congressional pay raise for which there was no recorded vote. People were not anxious to give us money at that point in time. So after a couple of weeks, they said, well, you're not good at this. John transferred to the opposition research unit and worked his way up. Around the spring of 1988, the powers that be uh, began to think that Michael Dukakis really had a chance at winning. And he had been governor of Massachusetts for several years uh, and had received a lot of very positive press about his record in Massachusetts. Uh, They called it the Massachusetts miracle, in fact. And so he was really getting a lot of very positive press and positioning himself as um, you know, a moderate Democrat, a sensible Democrat uh, who understood how to run a state economy and knew how to govern and, uh, and all of that. So the RNC determined that um, we really needed to go up and take a much deeper look at the record in Massachusetts, because when you're a governor, there are all kinds of executive orders. Uh, there are press releases. There is correspondence. There's a lot of information that goes beyond simply what was passed in the state legislature. The head of RNC opposition research at the time was a man named Don Todd. He summoned John to his office and told him they were sending a half dozen researchers to Boston and John would be part of the team. So this was an interesting experience for us you know, to actually get out into the field. I'm imagining like before the Normandy invasion, there everybody's <laughs> assembled in their flight suits in a, in a classroom. How do you plan what you're going to go look for? <laughs> we had a number of meetings in advance of the trip, uh, you know, to go through what it was that we wanted to collect and uh, how we would go about doing it. And, you know, one of the reasons that the senior analyst, you know, a man by the name of uh, Don Sinise, was chosen to lead this group was Dr. Sinise had done a lot of research over the years. Uh, He had written several books. He had been a former Department of Education employee and was a really, really smart, thorough, very, very good researcher. And so uh, once, you know, the the powers that be at the RNC sort of laid out what the plan was and what it was that we wanted to collect, Dr. Sinise went about, you know, designing an on-site plan for when we got to Massachusetts. Uh, He chose the teams. um, He identified uh, the places that we would be going to collect the research. And he uh, had certain metrics uh, (laughs) that, you know, that he wanted to achieve. And we had, um, we had guidelines, you know, for, you know, what to do in the event that wherever uh, library or government building that we were in, you know, what we were to do if people were to begin asking us uh, some direct questions about what we were doing there. Because what we didn't want to do was we didn't want to alert anybody in the state of Massachusetts that the Republican National Committee had sent a team of researchers to the state in order to, quote, dig up dirt on Governor Dukakis. John and his colleagues had their orders to go to Boston and collect files on the record of Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. The first step, arranged transportation. So either out of an abundance of money saving, 
or as a way of really trying to go up there under the radar, we opted to rent a Winnebago. Winnebago. Where does one find a Winnebago at, at that moment? Well, one goes to uh, uh, you know rental places. Uh, In Virginia? <laughs> I asked John, well, why not just fly to Boston? Part of the reason was was cost, because it would it was cheaper to rent the Winnebago rather than paying for six people to fly up to Massachusetts, put them all up in hotel rooms. Uh, it was much easier, much cheaper to do the Winnebago. And, you know, we were a, you know, a fiscally conservative organization. Mm, that would be off-brand. That uh, would be off-brand. And thus began the road trip. When John and the other researchers arrived in Boston, they parked the Winnebago in a quiet RV park and fanned out across the city, taking taxis to various archives, libraries, and government offices. The opposition research hall from that road trip included a letter from 1949 in which Dukakis and some college classmates protested the Korean War, and the high school yearbook of Kitty Dukakis in which she wrote about stopping male oppression. Researchers also unearthed documents related to Governor Dukakis's 1976 veto of a bill to ban furloughs for first-degree murderers. Dukakis vetoed the bill because, he said, it would cut the heart out of efforts at inmate rehabilitation. That furlough program would later cut the legs out from under his presidential campaign. One of the values of a furlough program, among other things, if you're talking about first-degree lifers, is it gives you some sense of whether or not these folks can handle freedom on the outside. This is from an interview Michael Dukakis gave to the Marshall Project about five years ago. 96, 97 percent of the people that go to jail come out. I mean, they're all at risk. Your job is to do the very best you can to put together an effective correctional system, which, among other things, seeks to deal with these folks in a way that makes sense. doesn't result in what we got today, which is, you know, thousands of young males incarcerated for you know, long periods of time who are then coming back with few skills, very, very little opportunity. Here again is Susan Estrich. Every instinct in his body was to defend the furlough program as something that was supported by wardens to promote internal security by giving people with nothing to lose something to lose which is a very good argument if you're at the Kennedy School, and a very bad argument if you're running for dog catcher, much less president. Okay, what you call it, furlough, parole, whatever, even probation. I mean, always subjecting yourself, and, and for that matter, your state to the risk that one of those decisions will be, will be wrong. You, you get one of these horrendous cases, and all hell breaks loose. There were at least four television ads in 1988 that mentioned either Horton or the Massachusetts furlough program. We're going to focus on two of those ads. The first one was produced by the independent group, the National Security PAC, and began airing on September 21st. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. 
One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. My name is William. Don't worry, I will call me Willie. That's William Horton. He's 68 years old now, serving his prison sentence in Maryland. And this is from an interview he also gave to the Marshall Project. I didn't take home to the name of Willie, Willie Horton, because that wasn't me. That's, that's not even my name. Well, the two ads are interesting, and I remember them vividly as a kid. Dr. Marsha Chatelain, professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown. The ad that features Horton is interesting because it's actually a picture of him after he was in solitary confinement, covering from the gunshot wound that he received when he was captured. But that photo of a shadowy figure, someone who looks, you know, disheveled and unkempt, this is a really powerful use of an image that is supposed to represent the greatest white fears about crime. And it isn't so much just a product of a late 1980s presidential campaign. Images like this have long resonated in media and popular culture in the United States by framing African Americans as unusually frightening and terrifying and images similar to that would be printed in newspapers in stories about violent crime. And so the use of that picture really made Horton the face of a supposed approach to criminal justice that had gotten out of control. The Bush campaign produced its own ad about the Massachusetts furlough program and put it on the air about three weeks later, on October 5th. As Governor Michael Dukakis vetoed mandatory sentences for drug dealers, he vetoed the death penalty. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out, many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape. The ad shows a row of men in prison uniforms trudging toward a revolving door and coming out again on the other side. Dr. Chatelain. The revolving doors ad was a little bit, I think, less sinister but very effective in suggesting that, again, soft-on-crime Democrats were creating a situation in which the facility that was supposed to keep people who committed crimes away from society, that they essentially just put a revolving door around it, activating the greatest anxieties of a certain class of, of people and voters by showing that the one system that was designed to keep you safe essentially would not. So... The revolving door ad comes on, and I gather the team, we get the ad, and I say to my group, count the number of blacks to one guy, and I said, count the number of whites to the other guy. And if you count the number of people going through that revolving door, the overwhelming majority are white. And so there is no effort made in the ad itself to play on racial stereotypes or the connection between race and crime. Many years later, when I was sitting around, I asked Roger. 
Roger is Roger Ailes, who was in charge of the Bush campaign advertising and would go on to become the powerful chairman and CEO of Fox News, a post he would hold for two decades before resigning in the aftermath of a number of sexual harassment scandals. I asked Roger why there were so few black men in the revolving door app. And he told me that they initially shot it and sent him the first cut. And there were too many black men. So he had the entire crew, which was all white, put on prisoners' uniforms so that they would be overwhelmingly white in the ad you saw. When Michael Dukakis and George H.W. Bush met for their first presidential debate at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, it was Dukakis who first brought up the furlough program, trying to turn the tables on his Republican opponent. You know, the vice president says he wants to impose the death penalty on drug traffickers, and yet his administration has a federal furlough program, which is one of the most permissive in the country and which gave last year 7,000 furloughs to drug traffickers and drug pushers. So you see what he's doing there. Oppo researchers working for him had found a similar program in the federal prison system. As a response, it's pretty weak. And Bush hit back. Well, the Massachusetts furlough program was unique. It was the only one in the nation that furloughed murderers who had not served enough time to be eligible for parole. The federal program doesn't do that. And so I am not going to furlough men like Willie Horton. The most interesting part, I guess, looking back, is that Bill Clinton was along for much of this ride. His title was campaign chairman, but he largely functioned as an advisor to the campaign and an outlet for frustration. But specifically, he came to Boston to do debate prep. And I will never forget Bill Clinton walking around the room time after time doing the Willie Horton answer, meaning the answer Dukakis was supposed to give if he got the Willie Horton question. And, you know, I can say it in my sleep. You know, I know what it's like to be the victim of crime. His brother was killed by a hit-and-run driver, and his father was mugged and left for dead in his medical office by thugs who wanted to steal drugs. And so I have Bill Clinton there doing it time and time again, refining it, and the man just refused to go on the attack. On October 13th, Dukakis and Bush faced off again in their second and final presidential debate. He memorized the Willie Horton answer. He memorized it. I memorized it. Bill Clinton memorized it. I swear anyone sitting in the room for debate prep could say it in their sleep. And of course, you know what happened. We get to Polly Pavilion for the second debate. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? That's Bernard Shaw, the CNN anchor and moderator of the debate. I thought, the Willie Horton question. No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better... And Michael answered by explaining his opposition to the death penalty, and the campaign ended. Thanks for everything, and God bless America. Thank you all very much. Thank you. On election day, George H.W. Bush beat Michael Dukakis by 7 million votes. He carried 40 states 
and became the 41st president of the United States. We won that race for two very simple reasons. Number one, we had the best candidate, George Bush. And number two, the best candidate got out there and talked about issues. And he stayed on issues through that old campaign. Lee Atwater, the manager of the Bush campaign, was hailed as a genius. His relentless assault on the record of Michael Dukakis, those points written down on that three by five index card, including the Massachusetts furlough program, became part of the history of American politics. I want to end this episode of Oppophile by going back to that road trip in the spring of 1988. John Schilling, a 23-year-old oppo researcher for the Republican National Committee, was behind the wheel of a Winnebago filled with opposition researchers. How many days was this whole trip? Uh, I think it was about five days. And, um, y- you know, we probably could have stayed up there longer. But uh, while we were at the Massachusetts State Archives, on day three, they began asking a lot of questions. <laughs> and we reached the point where, in order for us to actually view any more materials, we, they wanted us to sign uh, a document, uh, you know, stating who we were, what our purpose was, what we intended to do with the materials. And at that point, we had decided that our work was done. Uh, and it was, uh, it was clear that the archives had been sort of put on lockdown. Somebody had been alerted in the government that there were some researchers in the archives looking into Governor Dukakis's record. And that's when the lockdown occurred, and that's when we decided it was time to go. On the next episode of Oppophile, we'll examine the legacy of the 1988 campaign. What impact did the Horton charge have on Republican campaigns since then? Why did Lee Atwater apologize both to Dukakis and to Horton himself? What lessons did Democrats take away from 1988? And is there a connection between that campaign and the tough-on-crime legislation of the 1990s? And how are opposition researchers today looking into the records of candidates on matters related to racial justice and policing? What we have seen for sure is Democrats having to defend Uh, law and order records that they used to once count as a point of pride. It was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. I am dispatching thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers If there's a race card he hasn't played yet, he will. Join us for the next episode of Oppophile. Oppophile is a production of Last 5% Media. Our production manager is Caitlin Bruce. Our sound engineer is Jeremy Damas. Our researchers are Adam Melian and Lisa Wang. Andrew Greenwood is our designer, and our website is by Edgar Guerra. We'd like to thank Workhouse Media, Studio2Be, Chris George, Gary Maloney, Cassandra Pye, District Productive, R Street Recording, and our listeners and guests. 
For more information on this podcast, check out our website at www.oppofile.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Oppofile. If you enjoyed this episode of Oppofile, please subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now and share Oppofile with your friends. Thanks for listening and please join us on the next episode of Oppofile.